Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Thomas Scheibitz. He's included in Inherent Structures at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. The exhibition features 16 artists who complicate abstract painting's traditional association with chance and aesthetic purity, with work that addresses concerns that range from an exploration of materials and paints to the artist's socio-political interests. The exhibition was curated by Michael Goodson and is on view through August 12th. Scheibitz is a Berlin-based painter and sculptor, mostly, known for developing a distinct abstract language that compiles references to objects and forms into colorful holes. In 2005, Scheibitz represented Germany at the Venice Biennale in a two-person presentation with Tino Segal. The Museum for Modern Art in Frankfurt presented his first retrospective in 2012. His other major solo exhibitions have been at museums such as the Kunstmuseum Bonn, the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Dublin, and the Camden Art Center in London. On the second segment, B. Ingrid Olson, who is in shows on now at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, and at San Francisco's Jessica Silverman Gallery. But first, Thomas Scheibitz, after a break. Opening June 26th at the Getty, Icons of Style, A Century of Fashion Photography, 1911-2011, to a major exhibition surveying the rich and varied history of modern fashion photography. Drawn from the museum's permanent collection and supplemented by loans from private and public sources, Icons of Style features more than 160 photographs presented alongside costumes, illustrations, magazine covers, videos, and advertisements. Learn more about this and other upcoming shows at getty.edu slash 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Precarity, a new three-channel video installation created by Jonna Comfra, the London-based artist and filmmaker. Precarity explores the city of New Orleans through the remarkable life and times of Charles Buddy Bolden, the first person known to have explored the sonic tonalities of the music we now call jazz. Beginning in 1900, Buddy Bolden was the most popular musician in New Orleans, celebrated for his raucously loud coronet and down-and-dirty style. King Bolden reigned until 1907, when he was permanently committed to the state insane asylum in Jackson, Louisiana with schizophrenia. Precarity presents a sonographic and visual history of Bolden and his legend, the emergence of jazz, and the incomparable city of New Orleans. Precarity is part of the Nasher Museum's permanent collection. It's on view through September 2nd at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2018, the fourth edition of its biennial featuring artists working throughout greater Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curators Ann Elgood and Aaron Cristoval, Made in L.A. 2018 fills the entire museum and features the work of 33 artists. Through drawings, paintings, sculpture, textiles, performance, video, photography, and installations, many newly commissioned expressly for the biennial, these artists exemplify the diverse and creative landscape of Los Angeles today. Find details and a full summer of related programs at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in L.A. 2018 is on view now through September 2nd at the Hammer Museum. And we're back. Tomas Scheibitz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, hello. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with an interview, something you said in an interview with Hans Ulrich Obrist about a decade ago. And you said to him that the weakest point in your art making is reached, quote, 
if the sculpture merely illustrates the painting or vice versa. And I think that that's something that other painters who've made sculptures and sculptors who've made paintings have, have, have believed and thought for a long time. I'm um, going back to, you know, Matisse and Picasso. What is the relationship between painting and sculpture and how you make each? What is the relationship you want to achieve? It starts always in a, in a, just in a second when, when I have an, when I have an idea. And the idea is, is mostly, mostly in, in shape or in form, which is nearby and uh, generally objecthood or something, what you say in English. So it is this objecthood. So I'm thinking in, in objects and, and, and I'm looking at objects. And it is then the abstract filter I have to, to say, okay, this is two-dimensional, better and more kind of in my, you know, fills more my idea than the same thing built in a two-dimensional situation and it's always the, the idea is first and the second version is or the second step is I put everything uh, very fast in a sketchbook after a sketchbook maybe months later I do a drawing and the drawing and and, and the space between a sketchbook and the drawing is also very kind of the instinct space only and and a sketch is only readable for me and the drawing is maybe more readable also for the for the audience and then even then i don't know really is it a painting or is it a sculpture and then i i do uh, not always but for the for the strongest ideas i do a kind of a cardboard maquette or a table model or something and then I know when you have a, a cardboard market and you have it in your hand, this is sometimes uh, or mostly the, the scale of 1 to 20. And then uh, you know, uh, or I know, it is, is it better to paint or is it better at, to have a painted object? And my sculptures on the end are kind of painted sculptures. So it, 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 the surface and the kind of the shadow gap or the shadow color or the front color they are, are important. But altogether, I have to say that the, that the painting is always more complex in a way or more kind of visual complex. And the sculptures, hopefully, they are more tectonical or they are, they are more kind of, they are empty boxes always and they are, they are always a little bit more related to my own body size or to my own kind of how how long an arm is and and how you know where my eye level is and all this stuff my studio when you the studio is so it's i start always every day with sculptures and i'm an assistant and and they, they're helping me of course and after the the market i get this kind of prototype and then this prototype goes in my painting studio where actually nobody can help me anymore then so then i do everything by myself i'm losing a lot of sculptures in in this reason that it, i think they are too uh, they're doing too much illustration work in front of the paintings or on the end it looks like a set design for an opera house so that's that's the the, the most uh, evil thing and the and the most the most wonderful thing is to have a 
the whole studio looks in between an an and shower lager and and still life. So and and every object and every painting and every sculpture and every fragment and every sketch has his own kind of role and his own kind of space. It's on the end, it's an instinct thing. So. But the visual, the first thing visual, when I am sometimes I'm dreaming a little bit, or I'm I'm I have a daydream, or I have an idea shortly before I wake up, and that's always an object. I have to say, you know, in that interview with Hans Ulrich Obrist, you mentioned that in your studio there are often a number of what you called raw or blank state sculptures, which I took to mean that there were objects lying around which you hadn't painted yet. So you come up with the ideas for the forms of sculptures before you think about or realize what colors should be married to those forms? Yeah, it is. It is. It's also it's definitely not a game, but it is kind of an also, again, an instinct moment. If I when I choose an an senseful or a senseless color for an for a special shape, so I can do no, I can do an 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 blue background, and everybody would say, okay, that's that's the sky or that's that's the heaven, and then I when I put on the same in, in the same composition this background yellow or orange everybody would say okay that's that's looks like a wall and not in sky so that's a little bit this kind of common sense we have which colors you know in which color a special tree which, which color has a normal tree and which color has a special tree or which color is a has a special house or a normal house or whatever so it is kind of common sense we have this is my kind of toolbox on the end and with this toolbox i i hope i'm i'm nearby an invention all the time so one of the things that interests me about how your painting and your sculpture work is so if the color comes later to the sculptural forms how does it work on canvas because your paintings are made up of of many distinctive forms and shapes many of which you reuse and have reused for, for many years, and we'll get to that later. When you're planning a painting or making a painting, do you treat color and form differently than you do with sculpture? Or or is it more fundamental to, oh, if I'm making a, a house shape in a painting that you know what its color is going to be before you decide it's going to be in the painting? For me, and that's maybe a little bit strange for the for the audience for me color on the end when i start and kind of an artificial piece or a painting or a sculpture is not so important like the drawing or the shape himself so when i when i start a painting no color in the world can can fix the wrong composition or a bad <laughs> a bad shape so that that, that, that should be uh, that should be always first and and drawing is first and and shape is first and, and color comes second all the time and, and is maybe a kind of an works a little bit like an amp or like, like, you know, I, I can do it louder or kind of, or I can do it less in, in a situation when you, when you stay in front of the kind of the real object then later and a shape, a kind of a bore, or let's say a boring shape can be maybe fixed with a neon color, maybe. 
but not really. And a very interesting shape or a very interesting composition works also very good in the in the in a very dirty gray. <laughs> so yeah, I have a I have a very special palette, of course, but it's on in the process in the painting process. I'm not really watching this too uh, serious or too kind of. I have to search for this and I have to search for this. This is also an instinct process and since a long time. And when I'm when I'm looking back the last 25 years, it is maybe that the palette changed a little bit more in 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 more clear and in more poor colors. And what I'm what I'm recognizing, I'm I'm buying only for in the color shop or in the in the artist shop. I'm buying only four colors anymore. So black and yeah, black and white and three times three different version of yellow three different or five different version of red and then blue so that's that's all and in my early days i bought a lot of you know colors in between sienna and 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 all the gray stuff and beige and whatever so that that may be changed i don't know why <laughs> on the and and i mix everything from the from this kind of from this very or by this very uh, simple color wheel you know, hearing you talk about form and shape coming first, coming before color, I wasn't going to bring this up until later, but you are the son of a master stone carver and master woodworker, and the Scheibitz family business going back to 1927 has been in in making stone and wood objects. And I should also note that you've done a couple books with your father and, and, and of, of both of your work. Do you think that your prioritization of form and shape in both sculpture and painting comes from being your father's son, from from that relationship with with your family's work? Yeah, maybe something like fifty percent. And and uh, I had a I had a very nice uh, visual moment when I when I went to a Karl Andre show uh, last month here in Berlin, and uh, there was a very early uh, photo piece of Karl Andre where he photographed a kind of a an an storage place of a stone masonry somewhere in America in winter time. And this and this view, this kind of block tectonical storage space of of you know uh, of storage in or in of, of stones and 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 kind of very simple shapes. That is my. This is also my view. What I had in my childhood when I was a, a little boy, and I was all every day in the stone masonry in, in my father's place. And then you see the very kind of mostly gravestones shapes, you know, gravestones. So they have a little bit on top, they have a little bit of wave sometimes, but they are they are they are very kind of monumental, very tectonical. So that's yeah, that's a very important view when I'm looking back for me. And in the other uh, situation, I, I was, you know, I, I was born in the East. It was not so very easy when the wall was there. So and I had to wait when the wall came down. I was 20. And then I could start on the art academy. Before it was not possible because it was a political reason and I had to go to the army and blah, blah, blah. So it was very, it's, yeah, it was too complicated and it's a diff, this is a long story. <laughs> 
Um, before, so when you don't go to the high school, you have to go to the um, fabric hall. So, and I was, I was trained as a tool maker, which is also a very very interesting uh, training because you you're seeing everything in a kind of a casted way. You know, as a tool maker, you, you're doing things, or you you do, you have to develop a shape in in front of another shape, or in 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 you have to develop some fuse into an kind of an, an tool or into an an object what you want to produce. And this is a very this for me is also until today a very interesting point to see this situation if you you know this positive negative forms for every for every shape and every form. Also I had a I had a very very hard training in technical drawing which I like uh, very much also today. So, and, and yeah, that remembers me, mo- I have to say every day actually, this, this technique drawing practice also. We were talking a moment ago about the distinctiveness of your palette, um, both in your paintings and your sculptures. And in the pictures I've seen, your father did not add color to stone or wood. And it made me wonder what was the process by which using color, using lots of color, using bright color became attractive to you? Was that when you, you know, when the wall came down and you, and you did go to art school, was, was there a point at which it was, I don't know, freeing for the son to use color when the father couldn't? How did, how did your relationship with color happen? Yeah, that, that's a kind of very classical uh, question because, or an issue, a very classical issue, because the material as a stonemason is using is kind of a real uh, sculpture, sculpture material. So you have also, you have always this kind of, you have the stone or the wood or the marble or clay or whatever, which is as material very strong. So and then you don't need really the color on the end. And my practice in my studio, and that's because it was for me a great challenge when I could work with my father together because he could really going this kind of what I'm not able to do. He could do from the outside to the inside in a stone. You know, and when I do a, a plastic or a sculpture work, then I have to go from the inside to the outside. So I, I have to put you know, things on top of each other and I can I have to build this like like in in like Lego, like we like my son is uh, doing playing Lego stones. So that, that is, that's normally when you when we look the question, uh, your question really on the classical aspect, that's a little bit the cheaper version, you know, that's the more simpler version. The, the high-end version for a real sculpture who works with marble and stone is you have to see the figure inside your block uh, when you have the, the block in front of you. And this is very hard. This is really very hard. And and I, in, in this relationship, on the end, we had four, we, we, we started 14 sculptures and we couldn't finish only 10. Together, I, I came always up with a little founded object from a little bit what I found from in a playground or what I found a little kind of thing from a radio or cassette tape recorder or something. 
And then I said, could, look, uh, could we do this uh, one meter in marble or in stone? And then he he tried, is it stable enough to do, you know, with all the holes and the empty spaces in between? And then, yeah, he we ordered together a block, a sandstone block or a marble block. And then it's really unbelievable for me still as an artist that's, somebody is able to see inside this ordered block which is maybe a meter by a meter or something and then you see still this element in between and you know I ha I have to start in this corner and I have to leave this corner then and after one hour and then I have to start here behind this and this so very very exciting for me and and yeah I'm not able to do this actually I can I can build only everything what I'm doing. I want to go back to a painting question. You talked a little bit earlier about process and how you move from notebooks to sketches and, and, and what point. And your paintings are full of, of shapes and objects and moves that are often recognizable from painting to painting. You reuse forms and shapes and, and ideas. And there are these invented shapes and forms, but you often use them in paintings that are recognizable to anybody who looks at a lot of paintings. So, you know, when one looks at one of your paintings, one can kind of find a landscape within it or a still life painting within it. And so this is all a long way of asking, what about using invented objects or forms and melding that with a recognizable painting trope like a still life is interesting to you? Why use the made up and marry it to something that the viewer might recognize? Yeah, that's also very interesting, and this is maybe all this kind of instinct I have uh, on on the end of the day. It is always so. I'm I'm the most happy boy when when the viewer uh, or the audience in front of a painting or maybe also a sculpture, you're in front of my stuff, and you have never seen something before. On one hand, but on the other hand. In, in the same second, it should be also something familiar in your memory. Otherwise, it could be silly or it could be not from this world or whatever it calls. And so, and this is a very, very kind of the director of uh, the Bonner Kunstmuseum in his last text about my work. He said, I am a kind of a blade runner. So it's a, it's a, it's a one millimeter only sometimes, which which the composition is still kind of new or something maybe timeless, which is not really possible, but I try. It should be something like this, timeless, but of course it's not possible. And also, uh, so you, you should never seen something before like this, but on the other hand, of course, you need exactly in the same second this memory, oh, I, I pick up you know, the image, I, I can pick up the, the composition with something. So, and this is, that's all what I have. A good example of this might be a, a 2017 painting called SSW, which has a number of forms that are familiar in your work, especially in your recent work, kind of this big, very strong, dramatic black diagonal that cuts across the top of the painting this kind of arch-like form that you've been using a lot lately, these kind of teardrop shapes that have been in your work for a lot of years now, all of which are just kind of shapes and recognizable forms. But right there, almost smack dab in the middle of the painting, is a candle or a shape that is meant 
I think is meant to recall a candle. Could you talk us through first why you were willing to have that shape look so much like a candle because you kind of add a flame to the top of, of, of a white cylinder and how you hope it functions within those other objects in that painting? So this, the, the, the painting you're talking about is one of the four paintings, uh, larger ones, uh, from my last show for the Kunstmuseum here in Bonn in Germany. And the idea was that there, is a, there was a central space in this museum, and I had an idea to put kind of four paintings in four walls, like, you know, the, the north, the south, the east, and the west, this kind of compass, compass rows. And in the art history, it, we have a lot of, well, not a lot of, but a couple of artists I really like, like Blinky Palermo or the Otto Philipp Runge which they they worked with uh, also or they had some inter interesting question about uh, how is it possible to build up a daytime or the compass you know the direction of south and north east and west so something like this and this ssw is not directly south from the compass it's more the south southwest so it's so it's, it's it's from the when you have the full compass rows you have um, i think 16 different directions you can go so in this kind of after 15 degrees you have south southeast and then you have southeast and blah blah like this and and that was for me the kind of the big idea of the composition to have something that looks like what looks like in a kind of a, also in a common sense it looks like the south the east the west and the north without too much illustration or too much kind of you know to paint typical south is maybe to paint the pyramids in Egypt or <laughs> something like this that that's sketchy on the end but it should it should have an an aspect that you have an idea of of a direction, what we all know. What is for us, you know, kind of the north, what is in the north and what is in the east or what is in the west. And this kind of candle shape in between remembers me on a kind of a film or something what I saw years ago, which is on the end a tool. It's only a tool for or an element to kind of fix the, this uh, composition, which is also nearby to make totally sense and is also has to be also nearby to uh, that, it is, that it is totally senseless also. So it's otherwise I'm, I'm, I'm getting to narrative, which is for me totally poison. <laughs> If you uh, or sometimes when when I have a conversation and, and I explain something and then the viewer or the guy who's asking me says, aha, now I get it. Then I say, oh, oh God, shit, that's maybe <laughs> that's wrong. That's that's exactly not this kind of narrative This aha. Uh, now I got now I now I can see it. So that's it's too much. It has to be in between. You know, it has to be. An instinct, which a guy who is coming maybe from the south, as a, as a cliche from the south, uh, would say that it's totally senseless what you're talking about and what I see here. That's nothing to do with what I think what the south is, or the west, or the east. Yeah, that makes sense. I get that, and and I think that's probably related to your 
to how there there are forms and shapes that have recurred in your painting for years. And and I I suspect that by using certain shapes or forms over and over again, you're you're kind of making sure there's no narrative there because they're just a shape or a form. And we see it in a painting from 2017, and we might see the same form or shape in a painting from 2004. And so I wanted to talk about a couple of these forms and, and, and about why they interest you and continue to hold your interest. One that's been in the work for a very long time, really both in sculpture and painting, is the use of a very tall, very narrow triangle. And in some of the recent painting, you've even crossed that triangle with a bar to make it look like a letter A. What about tall, narrow triangles are attractive or useful? Yeah, the, a, a kind of a pure uh, triangle is very boring for me. It should be always something, you know, nearby the letter A or uh, nearby kind of an, something in a horizont or, yeah, or a, folded, a folded paper or something like this. And the space in between two objects maybe, maybe makes a triangle space. But uh, there is also kind of a theoretical, geometrical triangle is totally boring for me. But I, uh, you're right, I recognize this also for me very often. This is maybe sometimes too often in the paintings that, I, that I'm ending up with kind of sharp corners or sharp kind of angles. But it's always, it's, it should be always, a shape anyway should be always something sensible or visual visual knowledge behind or it is the space in between two sensual things hopefully hopefully some sometimes i'm losing this <laughs> aspect of course so <laughs> another shape that's been in the work a lot especially in the last maybe five or seven years is is a teardrop shape rounded at one end very pointy at the other do you know where you took that shape from and and what function you think it, it serves on the canvas? Uh, in all my kind of background material or in my collection of, you know, advertisement and art historian books and images, I'm, I'm a huge collector of images, so I have to say. So every day something is good enough for me to put it in my archive. This kind of drop is it's a very kind of in the in the iconography of the last 500 years we have a lot of possibility readings for this you know sometimes it means water today it means always on every oil based material or shampoo or whatever you have this kind of drop to uh, you know, to tell you that's maybe soft or that's maybe you know it smells clumsy, some, something like uh, this, or it's very harmonic, or it's sometimes it means it blood, or it's yeah water-based uh, stuff. So it comes a little bit from a also from from a very interesting point, which is for me generally. So that we that we have to deal with a lot in our visual world, we have to deal with a lot of new symbols and a lot of new kind of visual icons or whatever. So they're coming instead of words or of sentences. So 
and and that's a that's a very this is generally a very interesting point for me and the same kind of shapes or forms I'm checking sometimes in what it means a cube, for example, or, or what what, it, what was the meaning 500 years ago when you had uh, or before symbolism or before mannerism or before you know all this uh, yeah, illustration stuff you know what we can read in the Bible or what we can read in some you know early early crack uh, historical theater plays or whatever so it's all the kind of on the end i have i can say i have a very very a big interest in all these iconographic moments so the, the form that has been in your work the longest in both painting and sculpture i think is the arrow-like shape it's in paintings like hercules from 2006 turn from 2015 and in sculptures like Untitled T-Shirt from 2002, a sculpture actually called Arrow <laughs> from 2007. Why, what about that shape or form is interesting? Yeah, this is this shape is one of the kind of simplest and earliest things what we can, or what we use generally when we're walking around the street or when we're having a, a tape recorder in front of us or something like this, You're, you have, and this is an, a very simple and a very kind of, for me, the simple things are mostly the things with the high quality. Uh, that you that somebody shows you the direction in you know for something so and I have a I, I can remember in one uh, in one uh, interview with the painter Francis Bacon he talked about and still life or a landscape painting when it's kind of you know it's painted like in his typical situation and then he put it a and red and red arrow in front of this uh, landscape and I saw this painting in my in when I was a student and I found it very fascinating this is uh, normally not you know it has normally this red arrow has no place or has no space in this kind of recognized uh, landscape but it's still in my memory so it's like the combination of, of the two things so I found it very good very fascinating it could almost be said to be a shape that suggests narrative, but also destroys narrative. Yes, yes, it has, it has, it has to be in between. So it has to be in between. Great example is in my very the first interview ever I did somewhere in Switzerland in 2000, a printed interview. And I was talking about abstract uh, painting and stripes and whatever. And then on the end, I said to the interviewer, you know what, we can talk about ours when we looking the trees, when we looking the, the tree painted stripes here in front of us. But also we should know the tree stripes are every, everybody knows that's the logo of Adidas. So we can't. And, and 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 we can't look at we can't looking tree stripes without the knowledge that this is also the logo of Adidas. So and, and this is maybe the an example of what I mean with common with common objects or with this kind of common sense with all the and sometimes you know everybody knows Adidas maybe not everybody in the world everywhere in the world but for our context 
of course, we, uh, that's always, yeah, that's always in our mind. And that's very interesting how maybe, maybe it will be erased in 100 years or maybe this is the, will be the, big, the biggest brand ever. So nobody knows. That's interesting. And I think a lot of worlds and, and shapes I'm having in my lexicon is from the last 500 years, like a candle, for example, or like a, a, a standing prop or like a, a standing uh, letter in the landscape or a uh, kind of shape of a heart, heart form. Yeah, that one's been in the work for a, a really long time. Yeah, or and just the symbols of uh, this, um, what is it in English, the, when you're playing cards? Spade. Yeah, spade. It kind of hovers between a heart and a spade, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something of these symbols, what everybody tells, uh, this is this is an, an, a special issue or this is a value or something like this. Yeah, that's one American painters have had fun with. Uh, the painter Richard Diebenkorn loved playing with the four symbols from from decks of cards and and making them into things and making them into slippery things. It's a, it's a total painterly standard. You know, speaking of things and how they will last and be recognizable to you know later generations or not. You also have been making in the last five or seven years a number of paintings that reference the stretcher support behind a canvas, the construction of a painting itself. I'm thinking of paintings like Portal from 2012, Essay from 2008, and an Omega Cinema from, from 2017. Are, are you consciously, intentionally making paintings about making paintings? Or are, you, or are there other references there? Yeah, this is also an interesting question because you know normally when you start as a as a schoolboy or as a, as a young kid, you don't have this kind of holy object as a as a stretched white canvas on a frame. So that comes really that's the most luxury luxury version. <laughs> Only when you start, you always you know work on paper first or even a sketchbook when you start is kind of is paper and it's like it's flexible material and yeah whatever. And when I have a, a, a fresh and a, a, or a new stretched canvas, you know, sometimes they are two meters by five meters or something. This is really kind of a very, very special and a very nice. It's an object still, you know, it's nearby in sculpture for me, even when it's empty or only when it's empty and from the backside a little bit more than from the front side. So and a, a huge you know, to go with a brush and paint on a huge empty canvas, it is nearby to have, you know, to paint a wall. That's maybe also for the for the art history and an, an interesting point that, and that the large format on the from the American side always means a wall, and the smaller format from the European side always means the window. When we believed in art history and the Dutch guys, they invented the kind of oil on canvas painting. It was always the, 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 an idea of a, of a kind of a painted window, what is movable, you know, what, what, what you can move. Because before everybody was painting on a wall or in a cave or something. For me, an empty canvas is 
the most beautiful object. Sometimes I put this this kind of element in in in, in, in my Schaulager still life compos- landscape compositions, of course. Yeah, there are a lot of squares in in your paintings, and and recently you've begun to put X's over over the squares. I think in your earlier work, it kind of read. I don't know if it was intended as such. I think it kind of read as a Malievich reference. And then I think as your career has gone on, they, they, they've kind of lost that association. They just look like something that could be a door, could be a window, could be a canvas, could be. It, or today it looks, everything looks like a screen, you know, by accident. <laughs> because this kind of industrial development 20 years ago, Nobody was expecting maybe that that the screen or the computer looks like the computer looks like today, you know, like a flat, like a like a flat kind of uh, canvas on the end. <laughs> it's, not, it's not so far away. So that's an interesting point, you know, how 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 fast this can be changed. And in the beginning, it it was always meaning kind of. A, in between a billboard or kind of a, a poster or something in the landscape. And now we have the window screen aspect and, and uh, you know, this, this screen is always, this light comes always from the screen. So that's because I'm using sometimes for this elements, the, the neon lights. So it's like, it's like the, this is light, it's the kind of this self lightning effect. So you also have a couple of moves that are in both paintings and sculptures. And I think the one that has been in the work longest and that is probably the most prominent is how in sculptures such as in Carlo Crivelli from 2006 and Untitled Hole from 2003, there is an actual void in the middle of, of the sculpture. And that's stayed in, in, in your sculpture in the years since in a, in a work like Guitar from 2017 there's you know for obvious reasons a whole but in lots of other works sculptural works the relationship between an object and that whole is less clear and that and you've been including holes in your paintings prominently for a long time there's a painting that was in your venice biennale presentation called model from 2005 that's now in st louis Am, am i right that it's pretty unusual that you migrate a form or an idea back and forth between painting and sculpture that way? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And then it also sometimes the, the most beautiful thing, what you can do on a two-dimensional field is to make space. And with all the all the uh, tricks and elements, what we have, <laughs> it's a joy for me also to, to, to make something a little bit more spacey or something. So, and if, if, if the composition ha- has enough space also for, for an element like this, of course, so that's, that should be first. But to making space is the most nice and important thing in a, in a two-dimensional. And in, in, the, in the three-dimensional uh, situation is what I mentioned before is that the sculptures are, and you don't see it normally, but for me it's very important they are empty you know they are they are they are empty boxes and i have i have the idea in the future maybe to fill to fill some very special things into sculptures maybe oil or maybe water or maybe sand or maybe concrete or maybe 
something, you know, sugar, maybe I did some tests with sugar, with water to have, for example, maybe a totally abstract, or not a totally abstract, an, an abstract shape of an, of, an, of an head or of a body is then, is then maybe filled with water in the same percentage we are filled with water. <laughs> so, but you, you, can't, you, you don't should see it first or nobody should explain this, but it, it is something what is not so bad to have it anyway in the background as, as in fact. So. I think the last thing I want to ask is kind of something that's been at the root, is about something that's been at the root of your work from, since, since the start. And that you, in interviews you did, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, you would get asked about it a good bit, but really not so much since. And that is how, in your paintings, you really insist upon a tension between flatness and depth, illusionism and not. And of course, this has been a thing in painting since since the early Renaissance. It's what motivated, you know, Matisse and Picasso in the early 20th century. And it's something that has been really interesting to painters ever since it's it's a standard so why why does something that is so familiar within paintings history especially its history over the last hundred years continue to interest you why is it worth doing even though painters have been doing it for so long it's it's not easy to answer directly but maybe maybe I come up with a with an historical painting I I like very much and it was also a name for my the, the, the title of the painting was the name for my first museum show in 2000 in Switzerland in Kunstmuseum Winterthur called in English View and Plan of Toledo is in German Ansicht und Plan von Toledo and this is a very kind of interesting aspect on the painting side and also for me on the concept side. Because when, so that's a guess, I guess, you know, El Greco get the job to paint the, the skyline of Toledo. This was maybe too boring for him or too, it was not an image for him. And then he put it, the castle from the, from the, uh, from the corner in the center of the painting, and then the city comes around. And in these days, of course, every painting was related to, or should, I think every painting was related to this realistic uh, element of you, to this uh, documentation of, of the landscape. So, and he changed, or he, he left this documentation element Changed the composition in a in a in a completely free landscape, and as a proof, he put it in a three-dimensional landscape painted on a two-dimensional canvas. He he painted the two-dimensional plan of Toledo, you know, in the corner of the painting, to make this as a proof how the city looks like really on a plan, but not on on this painting which normally in these days, the painting should like should look like this kind of the map, you know, the exact map. So I guess that was in these days, it was uh, totally common that uh, the painting should, should look like the city looks like, you know, when you so this 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 relationship on the on the painting side and also on the concept side, 
I found as a as a young stu young student very interesting, and this is something what really follows me for so, since a long time. You know what is what is a document and what is a kind of a composition and sometimes the audience they they want to have the proof or they need the proof you know to, to read the map uh, yeah as, as a symbol as a not as a city map in this case but as a, as a to read the map as a symbol to get everything so maybe there's an example to explain this a little bit from the from the concept side and on the on the uh, on the practical reason is I don't know if if you painted once or if if you if you have uh, the experience to 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 move color on an on an empty field, and this is I mean this is the most exciting thing you can get that that something is in front of you and some something is not in front of you but you're still on the same you know two dimensional field in front of you. <laughs> Normally, not really a point we're talking about, but we we enjoying, of course, this every every second. But it's very hard to talk about what is uh, what is this kind of. And even in the history, when you say when you mention Picasso or Matisse, normally I can read in the history books. Okay, Matisse uh, he loves to have a flat. The flatness is important. But for me, is it not really flat? So for me, is even Matisse totally spacey and, and deep, and and something is in front, and something is ten meters behind the front. If you if you are you know in front of an original an original painting, so I don't in in reproduction it looks really flat. That, that's right. But in front of the original on the original, it's always I don't know really this kind of why we often can read that Matisse, for example, loves to be uh, to, to, to painted this kind of flatness so much. There's one sculpture in particular in which you've played with this idea. It's from 2008, and it's it's titled in German, but the English translation, I think, is backlit model, and it's a square and a rectangle on on the ground. And the painted surface is of, so, so, so it's, you know, they look like two boxes and the painted surface is of boxes. <laughs> so first, you know, the sculpture I'm talking about, am I describing it passively? Can you say the, the title in German again? I will try. Gegenlicht model? Ah, Gegenlicht model, yeah. Yeah, Gegenlicht model is a cardboard dummy actually made by invitation cards from the Camden Art Center show uh, from 2007. And it was uh, this painting, called, what we had on the invitation card, of the printed card, called About 90 Elements, which was also the title for the show, which is actually, which is very nice for me, which the, the Tate uh, London board is painting from the show. And uh, this was about the title was Gegenlichtmodell uh, sculpture from the, from the painting title about 90 elements and about 90 elements means the all the elements we have in the periodic system and an element is an element when you can't split it again so but even this changed also every five or ten years and the scientists they developing something or they just they they find something that okay this element is still we can split it in two other elements and then 
that's not an element any, anymore. And, and this little uh, this, this little uh, cardboard maquette is a very uh, <laughs> important piece for me because it's, it's, it shows, of course, it shows this the visual aspect and kind of this painted or printed surface. The same the same object printed is on the same surface as, as an object also on a cube. So painted cubes on a put it on a, on a cube. It was a little bit an experiment. So, but I, I, I it was very exciting for me. It's, it's maybe too simple, but uh, it's very important for me, the piece. It's both, I don't mean this as an insult, I mean this as a compliment. It's kind of funny. I mean, it just plays with itself on itself so proudly. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is this kind of Blade Runner situation. You know, it's really one millimeter next next to the highway i'm totally lost and then uh, or is it it goes really to uh, kitschy when i'm losing things there i call them always kitschy because or i'm losing a lot of things of course and then when people ask me why i found this painting shit or not so good then i say no that's totally kitschy that's that's not it's not clear enough in this unclear generally unclear situation <laughs> <laughs> so Thomas Scheibitz thanks so much thank you very much now through August 12th the Wexner Center for the Arts at the Ohio State University presents Inherent Structure a fascinating glimpse into the underlying sources and influence on abstract painting today featuring 16 artists, including Richard Aldrich, Kevin Beasley, Sam Gilliam, Arturo Herrera, Angel Otero, Laura Owens, and Ruth Root. Brought together by Michael Goodson, Senior Curator of Exhibitions at the WEX, the multi-generational group challenges historical associations with chance, gesture, and aesthetic purity, revealing the personal, material, and sociopolitical concerns at play in their practices through more than 60 captivating artworks. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Peacock in the Desert, the Royal Arts of Jodhpur, India, an exhibition showcasing four centuries of royal treasures on view in the United States for the very first time. Masterpieces that illustrate the history and artistic legacy of the Rathor dynasty are featured, including jewels, paintings, furnishings, textiles, a Rolls-Royce, a vintage aircraft, and much more. On view through August 19th. Visit mfah.org India for more. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents A Tradition of Revolution, on view through August 19th. The exhibition features more than 75 works from the Nasher's collection, ranging from the beginnings of modernism to the experiments of the present day. You can see classic works by Edgar Degas, Alexander Calder, Henri Matisse, and Pablo Picasso, as well as more recent works by the likes of Louise Bourgeois, Philida Barlow, and Alex Israel. More at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is B. Ingrid Olson, who is included in Being, New Photography 2018, which is on view at the Museum of Modern Art New York through August 19th. It was curated by Lucy Gallen. Concurrently, Olson is in Picture Fiction, Kenneth Josephson and Contemporary Photography, which was curated by Michael Darling and Lauren Fulton. It's at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago through December 30th. Olson, who's a little bit of everywhere, 
is also in a two-person show at San Francisco's Jessica Silverman Gallery through July 14th. And the Albright Knox Art Gallery just concluded Olson's first museum show about 10 days ago. It was titled Be Ingrid Olson, Forehead and Brain, and was curated by Holly Hughes. Ingrid Olson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Is there a difference between making art about the body and making art about an individual's awareness of his or her body? Because your work, your work is kind of right in that space. I think, I mean, it's making me think of a show that I'm very excited to see, the Met Breyer body show, like figuration and those kind of things. I think there's a difference between representing the body as an image and actually being a body and activating the space of being in the world. And I've always been interested in the kind of conflation of the two, maybe making images that allow you to see yourself in the image or make yourself more aware of being a body in front of an image. One of the things seeing your work got me thinking about is kind of the space I took and where my limbs are relative to my eyes and how I inhabited a physical space. And your work often kind of reinforces that feel with with the way you use kind of a plexi, not quite frame, but a, a, a plexi box or a plexi framing. It kind of urges the eye and the brain to think about body as, as a space holder. I mean, I think it, the plexi frames that you're referencing are like a very particular decision that comes from kind of a longer investigation of, I think, very directly just actual elements like light, color, space, in terms of like, I was thinking about the idea of constructing the space of a photograph when I first started using these kind of elements in the work. But then I think as time went on, it became not just about the elements. And I realized there was a very clear I don't know, a clear way to contain the body in a way that also paired with minimalism, which I wasn't thinking about when I first started thinking about the, the kind of elemental parts of photography. It was actually just thinking about the elements. But the idea of thinking through someone like Donald Judd or I think a lot about like Robert Irwin and those kind of people, there is a way that the empty spaces that they create help, like obviously that's like what they were about was to make the body aware of itself in space and using these materials and letting the materials be the materials. But instead I'm using them as a frame to put this messy body in and to re-inhabit the material in the space. And so there's, I think maybe a bridge where they do similar things to what minimalism did and does, but then also in my mind, it's a moment of also like reclaiming what is primarily a hypermasculine zone of minimalism and putting something that they didn't want in there in there. There's image and there's a body. So And a woman. And a woman, exactly. I think you're touching on one of the things about the work that interests me most, which is it's this collision of big male minimalism, materials familiar from big male minimalism, right angles and hardness of materials tactile hardness of materials from big male minimalism, and then you fudge it all up. Do you want viewers to recognize a gender when they look at your work? I mean, when they look at the bodies in your work? There's never a clear way that the whole body of work could answer that question. I think it's piece to piece, image to image. 
sometimes they're very much about being a woman in the space and the frame. And then other times I very much want them to be androgynous or more masculine. It's kind of that questioning the labeling of kind of, are there only three options? And there's usually a, a, a larger gray zone where it's just a body. So, so I think your answer is, yeah, I'm more interested in them looking at a body than in them looking at a body with a, you know, than, than in them seeing gender. I think there's a way in which they really, it, it does go back towards the kind of invitation to embody the figure in the image. I think most often if it were highly gendered, maybe it would be alienating to men or women. And then there's the, I guess, and not even just men or women, but maybe it's the moment of identification with the body when it just is like a body versus when you can gender it and when it's got specifics attached to it, it's not just a material or an arm or a face, you know, it's like the face and the identity do, it's like that's when it becomes portraiture instead of kind of more of a material investigation. So I have a couple questions about that, but before I get there, the name under which you show work is B as in the letter B, B Ingrid Olson. Is that an intentionally gender obscuring or confusing or mussing up, you know, stage name, if you will? <laughs> Do you know the moment, I think it was basically the end of high school in which I made that, made that transition to going by B Ingrid Olson. And I really loved authors who used those kind of moments because it is a stand-in for my first name, which I do not go by, but it's a reference to it. But I didn't, at that point, I think I wasn't going down that direction, but it, you know, R.H. Quaitman knew it was a good idea to obscure your gender, but I, you know, missed the boat on that one. <laughs> so you're saying it was accidental? <laughs> I don't, but I don't, you know, it's Ingrid is a woman's name, so it's not... It doesn't actually effectively obscure gender. I think it just it maybe adds a little bit of mystery from what I hear other people tell me. Or it could just be, especially with your last name, Scandinavian enough, Scandinavian enough to leave people unsure. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> your pictures often make it plain that you are taking a photograph of your own body, usually but not always, looking down at your body. So it seems to me that the decision to use your body and to look down at your body is a specific decision, kind of fundamental to the work. Why did you choose that path rather than, you know, looking at someone else's body? Do you know, I think it stemmed from this moment of thinking about photography, creating these images where the figure is often objectified if they're a woman that was like in the very beginning it was this moment of if i'm taking the photograph of myself in a mirror as is it still objectification is it self-objectification so then usually there's also doubling like views of both a mirrored more objectified body and then myself from the first person perspective myself taking the photograph imaged within the frame but it's just it, it was a matter of locating the image with my body so that it was kind of complicating that objectification. And again, I think this stemmed from, it's like, I think that was the real aha moment in terms of the embodiment, embodiment question, but there's no way to see your own face 
unless you look in a mirror. So oftentimes that's why there's no face shown even in the mirrors because there's this moment of like, that's the only body you know. It's like, it is a little more anonymous until you see the face with it. So I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask about both faces and mirrors. Are you interested in the relationship between your work and what we might call traditional self-portraiture? Because if you are, you're excising or refusing to show us the most traditional part of a self-portrait, which is, of course, the view from the shoulders up. So I actually very much don't like the idea of them being portraiture or self-portraiture, which is, I think, a little bit of a, you know, it's a funny thing to say, I guess, given that they're all me and my body. But I think a funny example of this actually is, so there's a, an exhibition that's on view right now in San Francisco at Jessica Silverman Gallery. And there's my work paired with Robert Overby's work. And then there's another artist, uh, Autumn Ramsey, who's also Chicago-based. And I'm going to butcher his name, but she's paired with another artist. And we were talking about it, and she makes paintings, often of animals or sometimes female figures or abstract paintings. And the figures that she painted just look very, I don't know, kind of like classical nudes. And she was calling it a (laughs) self-portrait. And so then there's me, who's actually taking a photograph of myself, and I'm saying they're not self-portraits but she's very interested in like psychic space and these kind of like mental projections if you will and that's absolutely not there's no likeness there's no I don't think I I don't think of it as like a record of my mental state at a given moment they're very about exploring the body in space and kind of these improvisational I don't know almost like sessions like I usually take a photo like a, a roll of images in a setting, you know, so it's like this kind of, I set it up and then I just go for it and I'm meandering around the space and changing things little by little to kind of gain different perspectives. So to me, that doesn't, there's never a sense of trying to capture my likeness as a person. So you also mentioned mirrors a moment ago, and I'm fascinated by, by how you you use them. The effect is kind of cubist in composition, but more Michael Snow in terms of how the viewer perceives the mirror and space and confusion and such. How did you come to use mirrors and why? It goes back towards the very beginning of seeing the difference between that being like the only way to capture the whole body in an image and potentially kind of like creating an image of a female figure. But then very quickly it became clear to me that it was a way to collage the space, to crop the space, to kind of confuse and isolate body parts to kind of accentuate them. Because I think that that's usually the kind of like the dislocation and location, depending on the image, is very important in the work. But it's funny you mentioned Michael Snow because that was definitely his work in the Light Year show was the work that I remember best being the one that I thought I could make. The Light Year show being? The Light Year show that Matt did at the Art Institute. Uh, Matthew Wachowski, the head of Cura of Photography at the Art Institute. So there was a Michael Snow piece in it that was sandwiched glass with some sort of like awful glue and these photographs sandwiched between them 
But I remember thinking, if photographs can be messy like this, I think I could be interested in making them. <laughs> because, you know, it was, I think it was my disinterest was always the like salon style matted kind of like treatment of photographs where they bleed into one another and they're supposed to be these tiny little entry point windows that just never quite interested me. I liked when someone thought of it as an object in the world or kind of this way of integrating materials with an image. And I think that was the show and that was definitely the piece that really kind of was the aha moment. So speaking of the way Michael Snow uses mirrors and builds objects from many images, your work also reminds me of the way images collide and overlap within Rauschenberg's work. So in, in, in a Rauschenberg, there is often a narrative there that is artist determined, but an openness that encourages or allows a viewer to find other narratives. Do you think of enabling that within your work or are you more interested in kind of an artist determined art artist centric one thing being here I think maybe somewhere in between because I think they're not like unlike Rauschenberg where everything is I think almost everything is a found image there's very rarely anything imaged within the photographs that isn't made by me in terms of other images or sculptural objects it's not like a bought or found image or object. And so in that instance, it maybe is a little bit more artist determined. But I, I've always liked, even though it feels slippery and maybe non-committal, I've always loved the idea of poetic readings of things because I don't want them to necessarily feel like, I don't know, surrealist juxtapositions of like this plus this equals something odd that you might dream about. But just, I think that they're almost like leading questions. We've talked about gender and the work that includes photographs. We have not talked about gender and whether it's there in sculptural works. I think I can find it in the sculptural works. Do you intend for it to be there? I think it's in, if you're talking about the relief kind of series where they're a little more minimal, those have always been about almost a hybrid of masculine and feminine forms from the very beginning with the very first one that I made, there was a realization of the kind of rec rectilinear format being masculine. And then these kind of inset curves that were not regular. This form I'm actually talking about was actually a found object in my studio. Um, it was like a little pencil tray that someone had left behind in the studio that I was in at the time. So it was very small, but I loved the idea that it had these kind of like stereotypically feminine curves inside of a stereotypically masculine grid inside a rectangle. If I can interrupt for just a second, there's a lot of that thing in a lot of your three-dimensional work. That's a, a collision, if you will, that recurs over and over and over again. No, it's not just that was, that was kind of like the seminal piece, if you will. And then everything beyond that, some of them actually verbatim used the curve that I found in that piece because it was such a specific curve. It wasn't just round. It was kind of a pulled, elongated, flattened curve that felt like just the softness of a torso kind of being pressed into the wall. So from there, then all of the other ones are definitely designed by me to kind of replicate the idea of a space for thighs or arms or a face or a torso. But yeah, oftentimes it is this both male, female, maybe just a body 
depending on the work. So we've been talking about a lot of different media. We've talked about photography. We've talked about sculpture. We've talked about handmade sculpture. And, and, and we just talked about molds. There's, there's drawing in the work, all of which is a long way. You know, this is a long way of saying you use a lot of different media, both within individual works and in installations of your work. Why is it important to you to use a little bit of everything, everything kind of but painting, really? It's funny that it's everything but painting because that was the department that I studied in in school. But I was even then only making drawings. I don't know that it's necessarily important to use everything as a conscious decision. It's more so kind of, I think, the long-winded nature of the process where things, I guess, get processed over and over again, where a drawing becomes like is a part of a photograph that then might get re-photographed. I, but I mean, the sculptures are painted. They're just very, like, not painterly, I guess. They're very subtle. It, maybe it's just that once you start using seven, seven different media, why not, why not use eight? <laughs> I mean, once, once you're exploring lots of different things, why not throw everything but the kitchen sink in there, except for canvas? But it is really funny that still there is, like, in the work, sometimes... I think things are photographed and so then they wind up feeling very pristine and kind of enclosed in a way that sometimes masks all of the materials and processes that are in there. The Michael Snow thing. I mean, there is the Michael Snow thing, right? It's like, yeah, it's sandwiched in there to where you can access that there are so many different aspects that go into making the image. My last question is one I'm slightly shy about and one that I've never asked anybody in any context in my life. But here goes. Why are there so many crotches in your work? (laughs) Why are there so many crotches? I mean, they're both crotches and kind of abstracted reference to crotches. I mean, I think there's also so many legs. Sometimes when I'm looking through things, I think there's so many legs, you'd think I'd have a fetish of some sort. But oftentimes, I mean, I think that they're usually, they're not, Betty Tompkins, is that her name? <laughs> I'm like, am I getting it right, Betty? It's like, you know, they're not, they're crotches. They're not sex parts exactly. That's why I, yeah, that's why I used, that's why I chose the word. Yeah, they're crotches. I mean, I think it does maybe center towards that, like, you know, looking down on yourself. It's, it's a point of view that is very accessible from the first person point of view. But there is also the, like, the endless house sculpture that's a part of the relief series that we were just talking about. I think I think you're referencing the Frederick Kiesler kind of prototype, which is um, known as the endless house. It's kind of a conceptual, cornerless, ultimately unbuilt house. A kind of we'll have images of it on manpodcast.com, but it's a series um, of biomorphic rounded shapes that sort of come together in the middle. There's not a corner in sight, and it could almost be described. I'm going to hate myself as soon as I say this, but as a, a, a kind of an amalgamation of crotch forms. Well, his, his are like little like pod egg postules almost. They're like, you know, these little cluster forms of rounded spaces. And where, and, and where they come together is a little crotchy. It's true. Yeah. There's like little, it's very um, Duchampian, like the, the impression. I can't remember the names of the... Do you know the casts he made off of Eton Donnet? I'm trying to remember the name of the series. But they have the little slits that come up almost because he pressed material into it. So there's like, there is that moment that becomes almost an impression. 
But in The Endless House, my iteration, my series based on the idea of Frederick Kiesler's Endless House, there's, it was important to me to reiterate the corner of a room. So having the sharp angle and then having the top of it round to be maybe the moment that the space is rounding and becoming more bodily and feminine. But from the very first iteration of that form, it was almost like Courbet's origin of the world. So it's like there's like it was immediately like this splayed open crotch. But there's nothing yet because they're part of this kind of minimal sculpture series, there's nothing anatomical necessarily about it. It's just almost doll like. They become more anonymous. But yeah, I think there's sometimes in that case there's a moment of it actually is an image, but there is kind of almost a way that the body can impress into it if you're the viewer looking at it. Yeah, I think there's never there's never a sex assigned to them. They're just crotches, but oftentimes they do feel a little more feminine when they're crotches in my work. Ingrid Olson, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.